all the information is basically out there. You need to know to do whatever you want for free. It's not really any excuse, I think, for not succeeding in what you want. It's just because of how accessible information is. Hello, everyone. I'm Glenn, your host of the Millionaire Journey podcast. The goal of this podcast is to guide and empower you on your journey towards financial independence. Today, my guest is Jeremy Target. And uh, welcome, Jeremy. Hey, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I saw you on uh, Twitter and I, I found it uh, really good uh, tweets about uh, house hacking and figured I'd have you on the show. So if you could just tell me a little bit about your uh, your background and how you got to where you're at today. Yeah, for sure. So I started out, I guess we can go back to college, about halfway through school. I went to school to be a financial analyst. So kind of like the the standard track, I guess, go to school, get a degree, work a nine to five, something that's good paying and something that I'm good at. Um, kind of halfway through school, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So that kind of the light bulb went off at that point. And up to that point, like I was raised by a middle class family and everything. So it wasn't really exposed to entrepreneurship, investing, business, anything like that. But once I read that book, it was kind of like, all right, there's there's a possibility I don't have to work for 40 years after I graduate, I could invest in real estate and basically have financial independence within 10, 15 years if I do it right. So that was kind of, I caught the bug there. And then the next two years basically went down the rabbit hole, of just educating myself on real estate investing mainly. And I was always kind of interested in finance math to begin with. So that kind of sparked my interest. And I just, basically self-educated myself on real estate investing with the plan to start investing as soon as I graduated school. So fast forward six months before graduation, I was actually working full-time. I was doing an internship in college and then they just hired me full-time the last semester because I was able to get credits for working. So that was like three classes worth of credits. I was working full-time and I actually qualified got pre-qualified for a mortgage because I was technically a full-time employee. So I got pre-qualified before school was even over, had a house hack under contract, three units before I even graduated and closed on it right after I graduated, basically. So started the investing career right after that. First one I bought was three-unit building, moved into one of the units, rented the other two out. And kind of from that point, just scaled my portfolio. I did get my agent license after I bought my second house hack, which was a duplex. And then my agent license, I started doing that part-time. After a year of doing the agent thing part-time, in addition to work, I made as much money being an agent as I was my job. So I'm like, might as well do this full-time. And I actually got fired from the nine-to-five job because I was doing the agent thing at the same time. Like, because, uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the corporate world. It's not really oh, yeah. about what you produce. It's how much hours you put in. So you finish all your work in two or three hours in the beginning, in the beginning and they expect you to stare at the wall rather than doing something productive. So I, I used that time to kind of build the agent business and they weren't happy with it. So we went into the agent thing full time. This was in 2018. And since then, just been doing being an agent, working primarily with investors to help them buy properties in Pittsburgh and then building my own investment portfolio at the same time. So I've been doing that since 2018. And up to this point, I have 40 units portfolio here, kind of a 
single families up to some bigger buildings with a partner mm-hmm. I own is like we have a couple seven, eight unit buildings. And then pretty much the strategy with that was I've done a house hack per year. So I'm actually closing on house hack number seven today. Awesome. And I thought six was going to be the last one, but it turns out we're doing a seventh year. So nice. doing the house hacks, like pretty much my entire 20s, I just turned 30. And alongside that, doing kind of the bird model with single family homes. And then, like I said, with a partner, value add five plus unit buildings at the same time. And then I've done, done a ha- couple house flips, but I primarily tend to want to hold them. So really just that's kind of been it. I do otherwise investing. I do a little bit of index fund investing, like retirement accounts and stuff, but probably primarily real estate focused. That's a lot to uh, unravel. I think you've got a great story. uh, First thing I was thinking is uh, what age did you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Probably when I was, I think I was 20. Oh, yeah. So then it's like you had the picture perfect start to uh, getting out of college and uh oh, yeah yeah being and, able to discover that so early and the yes. fact that i was still in school so i like some people are too antsy when they're getting into real estate <laughs> they don't educate themselves first and then they yeah. do stuff they regret later but like i didn't have the choice to buy a property so i i had two years to educate myself and that greatly reduced kind of any mistakes I could have made when I did get started. So in the end, it just kind of, I was that much more knowledgeable. So I think it was a good thing that I kind of discovered it before I was actually able to purchase a property. Yeah. It's also for your, I guess your real estate agent resume. I think there's, it's such a rare occasion that you come across a real estate agent that invests in real estate. And, uh, you know, when you get someone that invests in real estate, it's, you know, generally they're, they're great agents because they're treating it as it's their own. You know, they're, you know, you know how to underwrite a deal, you can find them. And, and when you have a, a buyer, you're able to, uh, assist them the same way you would do it for yourself is, which is great. Um, yeah, it made it very easy to be successful as an agent. Cause like you said, it was essentially what I was already doing. Like I'm, I'm looking at properties myself all the time to buy them essentially the same process. It's just helping other people do it at the same time. So it's very easy to gain credibility when you're so knowledgeable in it. And it was kind of, that's why I niched down with just working with investors, because like you said, there's not a lot of agents that do know that space. So it just makes complete sense to kind of make that my active income source at the same time to be able to obtain more money quickly to put into the the real estate investments so yeah there's i have like 20 things i want to ask you because i'm like just as you're talking i'm just like yeah it's great and uh uh, the first one would be is about the first job out of college uh what was your starting pay there like forty six thousand. yeah so the you were able to, uh, and how long were you there? To, and you used, you used that job to buy your first house hack? Yeah, so I actually got three before I went full-time to being an agent. So I had three house hacks. I That job I left right after the third house hack, basically. And, that, and at that point, like, Pittsburgh's a really good cash flow market, especially pre-COVID. So I would literally had all of my expenses covered from three house hacks. Like I was, I didn't have a housing payment and my expenses were pretty low. So I 
didn't have really any risk of going full-time as an agent just because I had everything covered already at that point by my my rental properties. Yeah, I think that's also a great, I guess, uh, thing to take take away from this conversation. I, I, from my experience, I'm also I have a broker's license as well, and I uh, tried to go on my own to do regular real estate, uh, and I was unable to. I, I did it, but my risk tolerance, like if you looked at how I invest today, you would think my risk tolerance is very high. But because of the income. It makes you be able to take bigger risks that most people would say you're going to go to a hundred percent commission job, but really your your overhead's paid for, so you're able to go out and you know make better decisions, and you're not being irrational based off of your financial fear of not being able to pay your overhead because you have the rental income that comes with it. Um, so for me, I, I decided I left. And uh, I didn't have a lot of rental income. I had like a couple, maybe like a, a couple hundred dollars. It wasn't, it wasn't anything to be, it was like paying a cable bill, you know? And, sure. uh, but, uh, you know, I ran out of my reserve because I, you know, there was months where you go without hitting a deal and stuff as a real estate agent. And uh, I, I learned then that the income was very important to me uh, for my risk tolerance. And then I started really focusing on, uh, I went back to a regular job and I had to uh, add rental income to it. And that's why, that's why I always think to myself that how important that house hacking is. You know, with your story, the house hack was uh, the thing that, that was able to make you go out and do the career that makes you zero dollars on day one and able to to leverage it up. So, Yeah, for sure. Like I haven't, <clears throat> I haven't paid my own mortgage since ever basically so it, it it enables you to get into like you said a career as an agent which has no ceiling on the income although it can be a roller coaster at times with the variability of it um but ha- having that high ceiling not having the housing payment is huge and it i think it actually enabled me to perform better as an agent too because oh, yeah. agents if you're str- if you're up against if you're in a crunch to pay the rent, you might act differently with cr- clients to make a sale if you need to pay liabilities every month than if you're covered and you're kind of acting in the best interest of the client. So I think that that enabled me to build trust with clients more also because they didn't ever, I wasn't really ever pushy or anything because I didn't need to be basically to, to survive. So I think yeah. that, that helped on both sides. Yeah. And the, uh... So, so you left, okay. So you left the job, uh, after you had three, was it three properties that were how many units? Uh, Six units. Awesome. And, and did you actually, how did you buy, how did you buy into them? Did you you move into each one of those? Yeah. So at the beginning, the first one was an FHA loan, three and a half percent down. And then the next two were, 5% 5% down conventional and then 10% down conventional. And I got the full seller's assist on all of them. So really I only needed the down payments and real estate's pretty cheap in Pittsburgh, especially pre COVID. Like the first one I bought was one twenty five, second one was 47,000. The third nice. one was like 85,000. So these, we, it didn't need to save a ton of money to buy the property, but yeah, the, the mortgage financing was definitely easy on the first three because then job and then, I kind of had to wait 
another year afterwards because I needed two full years of Asian income to get mortgages at that point. So like after I left, it was basically, I knew I wasn't getting financing for another year. So I kind of just put my head down and really focused on building the agent business. Yep. And that's when I really got that up and running because I didn't really have any distractions outside of that. So it was just kind of head down, focus on the agent business, got that up and running. And then I kind of did the two in tandem after that point, whenever I could get mortgages again, conventional mortgages at least. How long have you been on uh, your own with uh, being a real estate agent? I got my license in 2018. Okay, and then I just so recently started a team also last awesome. year. So now it's a team model. Kind of got to the point where it was too much for just me as a solo agent. Awesome. So now I, I have a team with a few agents underneath me on the agent side. So uh, I guess we could talk a little bit about that. How's the business going? Is it is you do you have it working with a lot of buyers at this time? Because buyers right now is what you want compared to listings, I would imagine. Yeah, we're primarily buyers just being on the investor side. Like we'll list properties, but kind of more so just investment properties like if our clients want to sell or anybody selling investment properties for the most part. But still pretty decent here. There's still demand for properties and Pittsburgh market hasn't really it's kind of just stayed flat like the past year and a half since rates went up. Starting to see a little bit of distress, I guess, in the multifamily space. So it's it's getting a little better, but there's still pretty not as much transaction volume as there was the past couple of years, but I don't know if we'll ever get back to that craziness. Um, but it's still a pretty strong market here. We have a lot of out of state investment just being a cheaper market. Yeah. So I think that it's that's kind of keeping things pretty strong here compared to maybe some of the, the higher end markets that, that aren't really investor focused. So also with your own personal properties, have you raised funds outside of your own funds to buy properties or how does that work? Yeah, once I discovered other people's money, kind of in 2020 was when I went down that route. Like yeah. was still learning, like up to that point, it was just my own money put into down payments. But then I kind of got more exposed to using private money, hard money. And then yep. at that point, it was really, I didn't use a ton of my own money because I was house hacking, which is very minimal. And then most of the properties I've bought were the Burr model or value add. So it was primarily mostly other people's money for the for the most part. Like I always had my own money to, for reserves and whatnot. But I think if I look back at it, I definitely didn't use it anywhere close to like the standard 20, 25% down of my own cash. I, if anything, I put a lot of money like into index funds and stuff as far as actually putting my own money into prop, uh, investments. But the real estate, what, if you discover how to use other people's money and know how to get good deals, I think yeah. that's the beauty of that is you can really scale up not only on the equity, but cash flow side at the same time especially with how the market was the past three years with the appreciation, it was just kind of like rocket fuel yep. on top of that. The timing obviously plays a role. Like we're, we're not going to see that the next three years appreciation wise, but being able to utilize leverage smartly without getting out of control in a rising market at the same time, it was just like, that was kind of the, the basis of building up the rest of my portfolio up, up to that point. And the thing about the market is that I feel that in the past, we'll say between 2020 to 2022, it was like a hard time to buy. 
Like it, it was very hard to buy. Like you have, to, I mean, I don't know what it was like in Pittsburgh, but it was like trying to make the numbers work. How is this happening? You're seeing other people doing deals, and uh, you're thinking, how is this? How are this, how is this happening? And then now we're taking a shift, and uh, you know the deals are starting to come out. Is what I would say is, and uh, and now people are becoming more fearful to buy. So it's like this is the time to really be, uh, you know, building the systems and stuff like that, that, that ramp up the purchases because we bought a, a handful in 2020 and then it got very hard in like 2021. Like I actually left my job in, I think 2021 and, uh, cause we were buying enough and I started my, my background's uh, property management, real estate. And, uh, I went full time to go manage this portfolio of properties that we own. And it just turned into a, uh, it was like a dry spell of buying deals. It was like, I had this idea that we we're going to do the same thing we did the last year, ramp up a hundred more units or something like that. And then, uh, it's, it's slowed down because we're, you, you know, you have to stick to the numbers. You, the good thing about real estate, uh, investment is, uh, you put it in a spreadsheet. If it, you know, if the numbers don't work, it's not like you can force it. You know, it's like, it's either cash flowing or not cash flowing. And uh, I've heard a lot of good things about Pittsburgh, and and it, I've seen this one guy on YouTube where he's uh, he's always walking through these buildings, and these buildings that you see look like they would be like multi-million dollar, like twenty million dollar buildings, and it's like he's buying them for. I think he was buying them for like five hundred thousand dollars. It was just just the type of construction. It it just looks like uh, it seems like well built construction because we're used to like either wood frame apartments to uh block and uh out there it's like the historic look to all their stuff it just it, it just looks but it's amazing how 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 cheap i guess price wise it is out there in pittsburgh so yeah definitely good quality housing stock it's a lot of them need renovated but as far yeah. as the structure they're solid for sure and we didn't really think probably we didn't have a huge run up. Like I think just maybe within that last maybe 12 months period of the low rates is where I was like really noticing like these numbers don't make sense at all. Like yeah. I think Tampa was probably a little, little bit ahead of it, especially because I think you guys kind of got more institutional buyers and stuff buying there too. We, yeah. have, we have some of that, but nothing crazy, but yeah, it, it definitely gets to the point where you're like, who's buying these? How are the numbers making sense? It just doesn't add up unless you're putting like 50, 60% down. So we didn't kind of start noticing that until recently. And like you said, it started to kind of soften up a little bit too. So that's, I think you just got more uneducated buyers getting into the market. And that was just like any cycle ups yeah. and downs. It's people, people jump in, but then those are typically the first people to jump out when things aren't looking as rosy. So it just kind of, weeds itself out ups and downs of the cycles basically awesome so i saw on your twitter you i think you said that you you have done six house hacks was it six house hacks that you did you you moved uh i think that's what i read no yeah i've done six i've moved every year basically nice um into a new one kept the other one as a rental and i'm about to close on number seven today I said six was going to be my last, but seven is going to be my last. I 
I highly doubt I'm going to do another one because I'm 30 at this point. I need to like do adult things and stuff. But yeah, my entire yeah. 20s, I was house house hacking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, it was once you start having kids, then it turns into uh, a whole nother thing. And, you know, there's different ways to house hack, I would say. But uh, obviously, when there's uh, less people to think about, it, it makes it a lot easier is what I would say. So you know, with the kids being with you, it's like, I, 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 there was one time I almost did a real house hack. Cause I have ways like that I've done the house hack, but it was, uh, I pretty much was going to move into this really bad area. And, uh, I was going to bring my fiance wife now, but fiance at the time. And I thought to myself, is she going to be able to walk our dog out here? I don't know if that's going to be okay. <laughs> you know? So was, I had to back out and, uh, but yeah, that was my first, my one of my attempts of house hacking. I've tried many times, and I've always not been able to pull the trigger because most duplexes, you know, could be in, you know, not all of them, that, but there there could be in rougher areas. And but the numbers still work. You know, you can you can still get the re- next door neighbor to pay your your mortgage that you don't have to pay. It, you know, so. Yeah, there were definitely at the beginning. I was looking at more cash flow friendly areas too. So there were. There are definitely some questionable areas at the time, although a few of those areas have gentrified since then, so they yeah. were good calls. It was just our workaround for that. Me and my girlfriend, we've been together for like eight and a half years, so she actually bought her own single-family house. She didn't nice. want to move every year, and she wanted to live in some of the areas she didn't want to live in that I was house hacking. So she bought a single-family house, which is like kind of like my second home, so like I'm there half the time. So it made house hacking seven times more tolerable, basically. Technically wasn't even there full time. It was kind of half and half. So that was kind of our hacking the house hacks, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. So, so where, I guess from here, what are your goals today? Like, what are your plans and what would you like to be in a year, five years from, from now? Yeah, so I'm at, I'll be at 43 units total after I close on the, the house hack today. Um, I don't think I necessarily want to add more units. I think if anything, I'll either sell the properties that are maybe in lower rent areas. So like, just to give you some number examples here, like in a C-class area, half hour from downtown, you're probably renting a two-bedroom unit for, say, 800 bucks. Whereas if you go in a A class area in the city, you're renting a two bedroom for thirteen, fourteen hundred. So same amount of work management wise, mentally, just keeping track of these things as arguably even less work in the A class area. Yes. So I think maybe getting the portfolio the same number of units but higher rent per unit is something I was thinking about because we have like I'm really involved in the one to 20 unit space here as an agent. So I kind of have a unfair advantage, you could say in that space. So maybe continuing to focus in that space, because I know I can get good deals, just being so involved, you tend to have opportunities that the general public doesn't have just naturally. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe staying in that space, but kind of trading up to more quality units, but keeping the same number of units or selling the smaller stuff and just getting one or two bigger buildings that are under one roof, like apartment buildings at some point to kind of make things more efficient. So I think like I'm good 
like if I work backwards, assuming all my portfolio was paid off at this point, it's it's plenty enough cash flow to for me to live off of. So I don't necessarily need to add more units, but I'm thinking those are kind of 10, 15, 20 years down the line, maybe where I want to get to just to simplify my life and maybe even do... I'm not a huge fan of the stock market, but I like it because it's 100% passive. So maybe get a little more exposure to that, but I, I will never probably be a majority stock market. I'll always do kind of real estate. Like I said, unfair advantage doing it myself. It's almost like insider trading, basically. Yep. So oh, yeah. I think that's kind of where we'll get to. But like right now, I'm kind of satisfied with the portfolio. Maybe let those things kind of get paid down and over time transition into the high quality or apartment buildings, I'm thinking. So do you have a property manager? Are you managing them yourself? Or So pretty much all of them are with the property management company. I outsourced that mm. January of this year. Um, I still manage some of the higher end ones, like single family homes in A-class areas. I think I manage like 10 of them, but those are kind of the ones that I still self-manage because they're relatively passive from a real estate management perspective just they're higher end areas quality properties those are the ones that i figured i can still continue to manage it's not too much of a hassle for me and then i me and my team still do the leasing on them as well so like we'll lease out the units so property management i, I definitely wanted to outsource the majority of that because that's that can get yeah. thankless after so many years oh uh, yeah yeah okay so I'm just kind of playing it through because I, I understand what you're saying about paying them down, but I'm more of a bigger unit count guy. So what would be the thing that's keeping you from buying more? Like, why why would you not want to buy more? Like, why would you not want to take your 40 units to 100 units or 100 units to 500 units? I think for me, it's simplicity because I know that if I wanted to get to that point, I need to kind of turn it more into a real business yeah. rather than just kind of like a lifestyle business, I guess. Yeah. So I think like, I think that's kind of the breaking point is once you go above 50, you really need to systematize things, turn it into a true business and having a true business comes along with maybe less flexibility in a way. So that's kind of the going back and forth. Like, I'm the type of person, like type A personality, I want to build, build, build. So it's kind of hard for me to, I guess, pump the brakes a little bit, but I'm also looking for simplicity at the same time. And that may change in the future, but that's just kind of what I'm thinking now is just focusing more on lifestyle flexibility, simplicity, rather than squeezing every penny out of the money side of things, if that yeah. makes sense. So I had this uh, realization the other day. My my business partner, his dream when we first started uh, was to start a REIT, which sounds insane in my opinion. And I, I used to work for a REIT. So I kind of, I don't know like all the details, but I knew like there was like 1,500 employees for the company, you know? So, <laughs> but I think to myself that there was this guy, his name is Wayne Hughes. He's a, he's a founder of Public Storage. is the second biggest REIT in the, in the world. And uh, and then he started the company I work for, buying single-family homes. And I thought about how he did it. And I would say that this guy bought, and it, I put quote-unquote, bought houses 
hundred houses a month in Tampa. And it was probably other markets, a hundred houses a month in those markets, Atlanta. And I thought that guy, he was probably, I don't, I think he was like 80, 85 years old when that happened. I was like, there's no way Wayne Hughes went out and bought all these houses himself. You know, he hired the right people, grade A people. And I think to myself, uh, him, I have also, there's been times where I've, when I've been in management, where I had managed like 1500 people, or not 15, 15 people at one, like it was insane. There was just so many people and it was very, it was exhausting, but I'd have the people that I worked, that I managed, uh, they would always say to me, uh, something along the lines of, oh, I would never want your job. And I, my thought to myself was, I would never want their job, you know? So it was like, cause they're. They're working. They're working hard. They're, I pretty much kind of managed a sales team and they're working their butts off. And I think to myself, I didn't want their job. And they kind of thought the same thing. And it was like, I thought to myself, maybe I'm that person that's saying, I don't want to make build a REIT because I look at all the work that, that's included, but you get, you get the right people behind you. Like Alex Hermosi calls them Sandras, you know, the Sandras that you give them something. And then they take it, they take it from you and they run with it. And that those are the people that I'd like to have. He said, all you need is six Sandra. You know, if you have one Sandra, you've, you've gained a level. But if you had six Sandras, he said, you're infinite wealth type thing. And I think to, to myself that the goal is to, for me, would be to like find those people that want to run with the, the dream and, and then let it go. And I, I think that this guy, Wayne Hughes, owned a, uh, a bunch of horses in Kentucky. And I'm like, no way is this guy buying, you know, thousands of houses a month, but he had the right people to do it. And, uh, it was a good lesson and, and a mental barrier for myself to think through this, uh, limiting belief to myself. So, and I, and I'm not saying that you have to do that, but I would say that, that that's kind of the thought that I had too. I was like, do I really want to have a thousand units or do I want to get to five or 10,000 or 50,000? And it turns into, it gets to a point where um, it's more, it's empowering to be able to hire people and build up their own lives as well to get them to where they want to be as well. So that, that was kind of like my aha moment. It was about two weeks ago and I, you're you're the first person I told this to. I just thought of it while I was driving. I was just like, my mind was like blown. I was like, I'm limiting myself because I feel like I'm going to be doing the work. But it turns into, I just need to find the right people to do the work for me and they will run with it, be happy to do it, you know, so. Yeah, I think that the key there is finding good people. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if you're trying to build a business, but you don't have good people, you're actually, it's but if you have good people, it enables you to be less less hand, hands on with the business. So I think that as far as if you are going to scale, you really have to focus, I think, on that as the most important piece, because that's going to drive everything, the results of everything else. Yeah. So if you could just uh, do you have anybody like mentors or anybody that you follow or? Yeah, like locally and kind of nationally. I, I was uh, also thinking with that scenario too, is like, I was thinking of these people, like this, like these influencers, like Ryan Pineda's, the Alex Hermosi's. And I, I like listen to them every day. 
And I'm like, I feel like I know these people, but I've never talked to them in my life. <laughs> yeah, that's how a lot of it is with podcasts and YouTube and stuff, social media. It's like you have indirect mentors. Yeah. Not only people that are like local, you know them on a, a first name basis, but like I guess that's the that's the cool part about the the technology and stuff where we are now is you you have access to to people you otherwise wouldn't have if we were say twenty years ago. So it's pretty cool for sure, and I think that's. That's the thing now is like information is so accessible. It's just a matter of all the information is basically out there. You need to know to do whatever you want for free. It's just a matter of absolutely absorbing the info and, and uh, taking action on it at this point. So, I mean, that's why I think anybody, there's not really any excuse, I think, for not succeeding in what you want. It's just because of how accessible information is. Like you, you Like you're saying, you have access to people that they're doing huge things and they're willing to give out information of how they've built things for free and just like take advantage of that. One of the things I did see you, I mean, it, it was about the student loans were, uh, did you ever pay those off or did you, are you just letting those ride or? Yeah, they're mine are like three and a half, four 4%. So <laughs> I know I can get way higher return on that by not paying them off. So I got that. I got a car loan at two and a half percent. Like I was glad to get a car loan at two and a half percent. So yeah. I'm never paying that thing off until it's just making the minimum payment. So I'm kind of like, I think if the interest rates like below seventy percent, I'm cool with letting it ride. If I have to make minimum payments on something, but if it were to go higher than that, like some of the line of credits I have now are kind of at eight percent, then it's kind of a debate of like, ah, I should pay those off. We'd, Guaranteed eight percent starts to get a little different than when it's two and a half, three and a half, four under five percent, basically. You know what I mean? What advice would you give to somebody? Uh, I guess uh, just starting out, and 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 how do you think uh, the best way to start today would be? For me, I think house hacking. If you can, if you're interested in real estate, I think that should always be. If you're able to do that, it's a no brainer not to. And then I think. Like I said, I I, I kind of discovered using other people's money to scale, specifically with real estate. I think using leverage smartly is how you're really going to scale things quicker rather than relying on your own money. So I think those are definitely two keys. And then at the same time, when you're just starting out, I think that gaining knowledge and skills is almost more important than money. So I think the sooner you can gain Focus, make that the focus at the beginning is gaining these valuable skills, skill sets and knowledge that are going to make you tons of money over the course of your the rest of your life rather than, say, taking a job that might pay $5 an hour more or something, but realizing it, you're not going to learn as much in that position. So I think look, thinking long term, really with anything, not being short-sighted, thinking of the long term opportunity cost of anything you're doing now i think just really focusing on that but those are probably just some some key points and i think something like that was big for me and i think everybody when they're first starting out is just living below your means in general <clears throat> it's it's very easy now especially with higher interest rates and like prices of cars so high houses are so high to almost shoot yourself in the foot from the beginning like i see a ton of people graduating college $200,000 student loan debt. They go out and buy a $50,000 car payment. They're living in an apartment that the rent is 
40% of their, their income, they're, they're basically strapping themselves to this starter job that they're getting right out of college because they immediately have all these monthly liability payments that they have to keep up with. They don't have options to do what I did, go be a real estate agent or something with an unlimited ceiling or more opportunity because they're kind of strapping themselves basically as prisoners with monthly liability payments that they got to keep up with. Otherwise, they'll, they don't really have a choice at that point. So I think that's super important at the beginning as well. Yeah. Also, I, as you were talking, I was remembering one of the uh, tweets, I guess, that you did. Uh, and it, and it kind of goes along exactly with what we're talking about right now. Because uh, first, uh, you, you were saying um, that you have a car payment now, and then we have... Uh, but in one of your tweets, you were saying to not have a car payment when you start. And I think that's the value of what we're talking about is in getting a cash flow, getting it, uh, you know, to where your income and your expenses are being taken care of and there's margin in your uh, expenses and where you're able to make, I think this, it's more of a wealth play when you're looking at an interest rate on a car. It's like, oh, it's a 2%, so you won't pay it. But say if you don't have 500 bucks to pay every month, there's, it doesn't matter what the interest rate is. It could be zero, and it would still not be a good investment, <laughs> you know, if you're not able yeah. to pay it. And I think that's the one thing I always think of. Like, you hear it on Twitter all the time with people arguing, oh, car payments are good or whatever. It's like using other people's money. And it's like, well, in the scenario of, you don't have $500 to pay for a car is a bad idea. But if you have the abundance of cash flow, it uh, opens up the doors to maybe make something that you don't have to fork up as much money, but at the same time, you have cheap, cheap money that you're using. So, yeah, like I didn't get a car payment until I was at least a handful of years into it. And that was at the point where I actually needed a new car. Yeah. And that was, I used the, the tax deduction that for real estate professional 100% bonus depreciation yeah. at that point in time. So basically the IRS paid for half of my vehicle. So it was like, I was okay with especially doing the, the car payment at that point. Cause I got a huge tax deduction of 50% on what the vehicle actually costs. But the fact that I financed a hundred percent of it at two and a half percent, I basically got that money in investing that money is over and above paid for almost the the whole payment essentially so if you can kind of work the tax system as well but yeah don't don't buy anything before you need it and i think especially with cars even if you are getting financing at two and a half percent i i wouldn't recommend purchasing something that you wouldn't otherwise be able to purchase in cash i think that's something that in cars specifically that i'm a big believer in yep what kind of car is it it's a Chevy Blazer SUV. Oh, okay. I'm I'm thinking like first I was like it's a Tesla because I was thinking that it was a tax deduction and then I but that doesn't seem over the top. Uh, yeah, it, nothing wild. Um I guess over the top for what what I uh was used to as far yeah. as that goes, but it, the thing with the tax deduction is it has to be over 6,000 pounds. So we're looking at SUVs plus in Pittsburgh I, sports cars aren't really yeah practical so that that was actually six thousand and one pounds it's like they designed it for for that uh tax deduction how does that i i'm thinking about for myself i have kids and i have a 
I have a truck, but it's not very kid friendly. But um, what is the tax story on that? I, I, I've heard it and I've always thought, uh, try not to let the, what is it? The tax, the tax tail wag the dog or something like that is, is what they say. Yeah. But, like buying something just for the sake of getting a tax deduction. Yeah. What actually is the benefit there? Yeah, go ahead. So it's phasing out now. It's at 80% bonus depreciation next year. I think it goes to 60. But basically what it was is if you purchase a vehicle that's over 6,000 pounds, whatever the purchase price of the vehicle is, you can deduct from your gross income from that year. So say you buy a vehicle for 50,000, buy a vehicle, AKA you can finance the whole thing. So that's what I did. I had a tax deduction straight off the top of my income of the purchase price of the vehicle for that year. So I flipped the house that year and it was real. And it was also 2020. My agent income was going up pretty good. So I was getting pretty hit pretty hard with taxes as far as that goes. So, and I flipped the house. I made like 93,000 on the house flip that year too, which was that definitely helped scale things along profiting 93 grand from house flip. But yeah. that's why I use it, utilized it because I needed a new car and it helped offset income. So, eighty percent now, if you buy something for fifty thousand, you can deduct forty thousand off of your taxes for that year. But the cool part is you can finance it if you want. It's not as advantageous now with interest rates on cars at like what, eight, yeah. nine, ten percent. Um, but back then, it was definitely advantageous to being able to borrow two and a half and get that full deduction. Um, in that in that tax year, so it's only available to like business owners, but like me as a real estate professional, I was able to take advantage of it. And it applies to apartment buildings as well. If you get expensive real estate, you can do the same thing with that with the cost segregation, get the deduction as much as you can up front in that year. So it's time value money. Basically, you get get that money in your pocket this year, can invest it over time instead of having to kind of depreciate over the course of the lifetime of the asset you can do it all up front in one year and that was something that that uh part of what trump passed back when he was the president yeah. so it's phasing out now so um i will just say the car is forty thousand dollars and so if you were to make like a hundred thousand dollars that year you that means that your tax basis would be based off of sixty thousand is that how it works yep exactly okay yeah and it's not towards your tax money it's towards the income basis and then yeah yeah awesome so yeah, exactly, I always you're kinda, paying less taxes on it yeah year. exactly there's a part of me i'm in a situation right now where i feel like it might benefit me and i'm like well give me one good reason to buy this truck <laughs> you know oh I'm, yeah people are going crazy with it like g-wagons and like we're yeah. popping up all over the place especially like down in miami with, with yeah. all the the crypto bros down there like you would saw g-wagons everywhere so it was and that was the thing is this 6,000 pounds or higher was, was the, the requirement. So you, everything 6,000 pounds and higher was like going crazy. Yeah. And the, the other thing that I always think of with that is that, uh, it was like 2006, you saw all these H2s and, uh, all these gigantic SUVs. And then I, you know, it just, uh, and then, and then people get criticized for that tax, uh, benefit. Because it, you know, it just straps those payments on the people, and because uh, they were doing it for tax advantages, but you still have the payments. And to they pay didn't for even it. need the vehicle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
But uh, no, it sounds awesome. You're doing great. And I think, I bet if we, I, I'm making a prediction, you don't agree with it, but you'll probably be at 80 units before we know it. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, the, the plan was to stop at 30. My girlfriend gives me shit about this all the time. She goes, yeah. oh, we're stopping at 30 and now you're, you blew past that right away. I'm like, it's so addicting. Like when you're in the business, oh yeah, yeah. like it's just something about the money at a certain point. It's just kind of the art of the deal. And I, don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised either. <laughs> I would say that a lot of people, I, I think I sent a, tw- a tweet out today about it, but it was, uh, people are critical on like, all oh, you need is 10 rentals, but I can tell you that I managed 330 units and, at 330 or 350, something like that. But I don't have to do much. I literally talked, I have three girls in the office and they manage most of it. And uh, I have to, I have to oversee a lot and I might drive properties, but uh, nothing's pressing for time. You know, like I, I drove literally, I drove all day yesterday, but other than that, uh, most of my stuff is a couple hours of work in front of the computer and and making sure that the bills are right um, and then putting those systems in place. And it's like I say to myself, I have 350 units and uh, a thousand would make this easier. It's like that's I know it would because I, I can hire this uh, a solid, you know, we can get quality property, you know, all these people in place and uh, better systems, higher pay for everybody. And uh, it will make it easier for myself as well. <laughs> so it is, uh, I would imagine that um, the person that has a thousand would say that 2000 would make it easier. So I, I you know, it's, it, there's a never ending need, but uh, it was great having you on. I uh, love the conversation. I, if people could follow you, I'll have all of this contact information in the notes below or in the podcast notes. And yeah, I appreciate you coming on, Jeremy. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for uh, listening and uh, make sure you rate, subscribe, like, and comment below. Thank you.